On today's episode, we're very happy to be speaking with the new police chief of Rancho Cordova, Matthew Tamayo. Even though he's our new police chief, Chief Tamayo is no stranger to Rancho Cordova. He's had several assignments here with the Rancho Cordova Police Department. But earlier this year, he came to us as our new police chief. If you've listened to this show, you've heard me speak to Chief Brandon Luke, which was his predecessor, and we've spoken to Sheriff Jim Cooper, and even to Chief Kathy Lester from the Sacramento Police Department. So I'm very excited about today's show to speak to uh, Matthew Tamayo, to get to know him and to get his vision for policing and all things law enforcement here in Rancho Cordova. So now, on to today's show. So Chief Matthew Tamayo, welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. I know you've been the Rancho uh, PD chief for a couple of months now, but welcome to the city of Rancho Cordova as chief. Thank you for having me here. But you were actually, you've actually worked at Rancho Police Department for a while, right? Yes, this is my fifth job within the Rancho Cordova Police Department. So when did you first come here and how did you come here? Were you just a, a deputy on the streets or did you come as a ranked? Uh, no, unfortunately, uh, when I was a deputy, I spent all of my patrol time in the North Division. So Orangevale, Fair Oaks, Sacramento, the area around Citrus Heights, um, and then later North Highlands, Rio Linda, Alberta, and that Sacramento, North Sacramento area. Uh, but when I first came to Rancho Cordova was as a sergeant. So I was a patrol supervisor and I spent a short amount of time as a patrol supervisor on day shift. And that was my first real experience working in the city. Right. And am I right in thinking that the officers in Rancho, I've been told, they're pretty much pan-picked or there's a selection process? I mean, not anyone could say, I want to just be assigned in Rancho, right? They have to be chosen like yes. another police, you know, like if you were going to a police department. Correct. Yeah, there's a selection process. And so, uh, as your listeners probably know, but I'll reiterate it, uh, the Ranch Cordova Police Department is a contract fulfilled by the Sheriff's Office, right. Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, and has been since incorporation. Um, and so, what you get is um, the ability to handpick the employees that come out. And so, a person within the Sheriff's Office can express interest and say, hey, I'd like to work in Rancho Cordova, uh, and they put their name on a list, or they uh, apply for a job posting. But after that, they have to go through an interview process, a vetting process, wow. and should they then be selected, uh, that's when they come over. So even though you're working for the sheriff's office, it's almost like joining a new department. Y yeah, sort of. It's uh, you're, you're in a department inside of a department, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. So a couple of questions for me on that would be why – are they? Are you so selective as to who the officers who come here, and who makes that decision? Who who is the picker? Is it the is it the city manager's office, or is it within the police department and you? So it depends on who picks. Um, for the police chief, that's a city manager right. responsibility. So right. Micah Runner um, right. and I, you know, just was lucky enough to interview for that job, and so we went through a pretty exhaustive interview process with city staff and then the city manager. Uh, but after that. It's largely um, the sheriff's office that picks. However, um, I do like having city input because this is a contract for the right. city. And so what I ask is when we have interviews for specialty assignments, um, for higher level uh, positions, that the city is involved in some way. So whether it be the city manager or city staff, um, one of them is usually involved in, in the interview and application process. 
And then why are you selective with the officers? Because I've had a lot of dealings with the police here in a good way, I would say, not in a bad way. <laughs> good. And um, I mean, the police here are good. You know, they're very, they're very into their jobs. They're very, um, they care about the city. That's become, that's fairly obvious. And I think that in general, I think the police are liked in the city of Rancho Cordova. Is that one of the reasons why you're selective as to who works here? Yes, absolutely. You know, we're looking for a specific person with community engagement and volunteerism in mind, as well as being responsible and accountable. Um, by nature of the contract and the verbiage, we get to pick. And so we want to pick the very best. And when you look at the entirety of the sheriff's office and the people, there's great people all over. Um, but when you look at who's worked in Rancho Cordova and then gone on to success either right. in detectives or promotion, uh, an overwhelming portion worked in Ranch Cordova or East Division at some point. Um, and it's a point of pride for me, and I know my predecessor as well, that right. because we get to pick individuals who have a promising future, who've um, shown um, the desire to improve themselves and be part of a team, uh, we can then cultivate that person, get them the necessary training and guidance and mentorship uh, to then help them move on with their career hopefully promote and then come right back to the police department, right. much much like me and, and uh, you know, other people that right. work for uh, the police department. And you've been with the Sacramento Sheriff's Office for 20 years, right? Over 20, yeah. Over, I started yeah. the academy in uh, 1999, and then I graduated in 2000. I went to a nighttime extended academy so I could work, uh, and then uh, that took a year. And then upon graduation, um, I didn't have a job with the sheriff's office yet. I was in the application process. Uh, so I didn't start working. I graduated in May of 2000, but I didn't start working for the sheriff's office until October right. of 2000. To me, you look very young. So how old were you when you uh, joined the, the police, the sheriff's office? So I was just before my 25th birthday oh, okay. when I started so as an on-call sheriff's deputy. Okay. Well, you, look, you certainly look younger than you are. <laughs> Thank you. So tell us a little bit of time, your career trajectory within the sheriff's office. So um, I guess it goes back to 1998. Uh, I'd never wanted to be a cop before that, never really considered it. Um, but through the encouragement um, and guidance and advice from a few of my close friends, uh, I thought, hey, maybe I will give this an opportunity. And so I started doing a little bit of research. Uh, I didn't really know if I wanted to be in a police department, a sheriff's office, something big, something small. I had no idea. And so my best friend from childhood had gone to the Sacramento Police Department Academy and had been working as a police officer for over a year. And he convinced me to go on a ride along with him. Oh, and, okay. uh, you know, now knowing what I know, it was a rare night. But at the time, I thought, man, this is an exciting job. Right. Uh, I went on a ride along. It was with it was uh, out of one of their stations. First call was a vehicle pursuit. So here I am, uh, had been working at a bank for four years previous to this, wow. uh, sitting passenger seat in this police car, going at a reasonable uh, mile per hour down the street. So he uh, took you on the chase. With took him? me on the chase. Yeah, yeah as part of the ride along. Okay. You know, you sign a um, a waiver. Yeah, a, yeah, a waiver, and so. Man, it was exciting. You know, we're out here chasing a car, and then we go from that call to a uh, felony assault call, to then where it's nighttime and we're in downtown Sacramento, and uh, somebody's drunk in public, and they don't want to go to jail, and they're a danger to themselves, and so we have to um, not not that they wanted to hurt themselves, but they were so inebriated right, that right. you know they could maybe fall they yeah, hurt absolutely. themselves yeah. 
So then, you know, we're sort of uh, fighting with this person to get them into the patrol car. And you got involved with him? More observing, right? Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like hands-on, right. but just watching all this happen. Yeah, yeah. And seeing the, I played team sports in uh, high school and then a little bit of track in junior college. And so I missed that um, camaraderie of having a team. And so seeing my you know, best friend since childhood operating in this environment, obviously I had a personal connection to him, um, but the fun that they were having, the service that they were doing, um, the excitement that was going on, which I was lacking severely in my banking right, job, right. Uh, really sort of turned me on to law enforcement. And that's when I really started paying attention, doing a little bit of research, talking to people in my life that had law enforcement experience, um, some were older and were at the tail end of their career, uh, really convinced me not only to pursue that, but also to go to the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office. Right. So once you joined, what was, so you started as a, you have to start in the jails, right? Everybody starts in the jails. So my career is a little unique in that when I first got hired, I got hired as an on-call deputy sheriff. So I could only work just over 1,500 hours a year. I wasn't a full-time employee. Oh, okay. Um, and that's because in 2000, uh, law enforcement was very enticing. Uh, the benefits package, the excitement of the job, the availability of people that wanted to be in law enforcement. So it was very competitive. And so at the time, uh, I just was an on-call. And so my first job was working at the work release program over off of Richards Boulevard, and I drove a bus. So my, my very first um, position within the sheriff's office was driving a old school bus that had been converted uh, and taking um, alternatively sentenced uh, individuals, low level crimes uh, out to do work release instead of being oh, in jail, instead okay. of being in custody. And so I would take them around to parks, to uh, various contracts, maybe, um, you know, buildings that needed maintenance, you know, in the county, things like right, that. And they right. would paint, rake, right, clean right. up, just general. So like community service type of things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Court mandated. mandated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I did that for about uh, eight months. And of course, the goal was to become a full-time deputy sheriff. That was, that's what I wanted to do. And. So after about eight months, I was able to convert into a full-time deputy, and I was presented with an opportunity. You can stay at work release and drive this bus, or you can go to the main jail. And uh, I wanted to go to the main jail. You did. Yeah, I, I wanted to get that experience. Right. Uh, I knew that my immediate goal was to get to patrol and be in a patrol car, and I knew that working in the jail would give me uh, the basis, the experience, um, to deal with people that were not necessarily your friend, right. that were being held, you know, sometimes against their will. They're right. sentenced or pre-sentenced at the time. Well, I don't think sometimes, right? You're always held against your will. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're in jail. Well, you know, that that's a funny um, predicament because some people are what we call institutionalized, but they want to be in jail they because do. food's there for them. Yeah. Services are there yeah, for them. Yeah. Uh, they know that they're safe in jail. Uh, and it's more comfortable environment. Wow. Um, not saying that that's right or that no, that's no, how no. it should be, but you know, it's it's an interesting um, paradigm that some there's a certain number of people that feel more comfortable being in jail yeah. and uh, or prison, um, and so that experience provided me the basis to be safe, to be educated. Um, to go out to patrol and, and just be a little bit more educated than maybe a brand new person, like with a police agency right. where they go straight from the academy into a patrol car. 
I had that um, sort of soft landing going and experiencing how things were, um, how respect is viewed, you know, by people involved in the criminal element, how um, some of the misdirection or lying, you know, might take place and how to understand that. And I think for me, uh, that was the best route. And then you just went through the whole um, process of uh, all the d different departments within the sheriff's office? Yeah. So after I worked at the jail, I was there about three and a half years. And so whenever you go to the jail in Sacramento County, there's something called the rotation list. So you put your name on the list and through promotions, retirements, general attrition, eventually your number comes up. It's just, it's your seniority number right. and you have to wait your turn. Right. And until that happens, you work at the jail. Correct. And so while I was at the jail, I had various jobs. I, I worked on the floors. I worked on the high security floor. Um, I worked in the intake floor. And then I worked in booking uh, for a long time. And then I was also on the um, CERT team, which is the custody emergency response team. So it's sort of like, and I'm uh, glamorizing it, but like the SWAT team of the yeah, jail, yeah. right? It's nothing that exciting. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you do cell extractions, right. respond to riots, right. specialized training. Right. So I did all those things. My number came up and then I went out to patrol and I went directly to uh, the North Station off of Garfield Avenue. And that's where I started my patrol career. And that was uh, basically October of 2004. Okay. So, so, and I've heard that in the sheriff's office, you start in the jail. Why is that? Why, why do they do that? So I think um, there's multiple reasons. One, um, everybody sort of starts at the jail. And even when you promote, you go back to corrections right, exactly. and sort of start over again. Um, the jail's mandated, you know, the sheriff's office has to provide custody facilities. Right. Um, so not every single person starts at the jail. Some might go to work release like I did, or some might go to the courts. Um, but um, young deputies do go to the jail and that's just sort of the rotation. They go there, then they go to patrol or other. But is it an experience thing? Is it to prepare you for life on the streets? That's part of it, I yeah. believe. Um, but you know, and I've had a lot of great jobs in the agency and we can get into those. But my most rewarding job, my most exciting job, um, when I look back on my career now, you know, 24 years in, was being a patrol officer, yeah. just simply being in a right. car. The amount of things you see, the human connections, the tragedy, the success, everything in between, right. all came from patrol. And, and right. you know, when I sit and reminisce or I talk to somebody at a gathering or a party and they ask me a law enforcement story, um, I work gangs, I work narcotics, uh, I worked internal affairs, I, I worked for the undersheriff for a time. I had all these specialty jobs, but every single time it's a patrol story that comes up. Right. And uh, it's just- Well, that's where the action is, right? It, absolutely. But yeah. you know, narcotics and gangs had action yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah. it's just the uniqueness, um, the diversity, uh, the things that you see in a patrol car. Right. You, you can't see them anywhere else. Well, I would imagine if you're on patrol, you go to work, you're there to- to respond to calls, right? Or to see what's happening. But in a unit, you, you kind of know what you're doing, right? Because in a gang unit, for instance, your target is gangs. So I would imagine that you're planning your activities. So, and that's why patrol, I think, is more spontaneous. Yeah, absolutely. You're, yeah. you're right on that. You know, gangs, we have a, there was a mission when I was in gangs. Right. It was to address, you know, the gang element in Sacramento County and then also, you know, violent crime right. and narcotics dealing, human trafficking, things right. that go along with, right. you know, gang activity and gang lifestyle. But yes, those are more pre-planned right. um, for safety reasons right. and for resource reasons. Right. But you're right. Patrol is, you just never know. Exactly. And, and 
the dispatch call could say one thing, right? And then you get there, and right. it is completely opposite. Or you could start work at six a.m. when everybody's still asleep, and boom, you're right into it yeah, at six a.m. Yep. Yeah. And your day might be ten hours, or it might be yeah. twenty hours, depending right. on what happens. So we're going to get into all things policing here in the city, but on this on the podcast here, if you've listened, we get to know our guests a little bit about where they're from and they're younger. So tell us about your from where you were born. So tell us about your parents, where you grew up and school and all that stuff. Okay, absolutely. So uh, my dad was in the Air Force. And so by nature of that, we moved around a lot. Um, going back a little bit further, though, um, my father was born in the Philippines uh, just after World War II. And through um, his father's um, cooperation with the U.S. government during World War II, uh, my grandfather became a Army uh, employee and worked for the Army. And then through that process, my dad, um, my grandma, my aunt came to the United States. So my dad ended up in the Seattle-Tacoma area when he was about five years old. And that's where you were born? I was not born there. And no. so, you know, my dad arrived here, didn't speak English at all, had to learn a new language and a right. new country, um, starting school, you know, kindergarten. And so that was a challenge for him. And But he persevered. Um, he then, you know, made it through high school, went to college. Um, and during that period between, um, high school and college, he met my mom who was born in the Seattle Tacoma area. My dad went to, um, into the air force into officer school and then became, um, he went certified pilot, but then eventually ended up as a, uh, radar navigator bombardier on wow. a B-52 okay. airplane. And so, um, my parents got married. My dad went off to flight school, went to Vietnam, uh, came back. And I was born um, just north of here at Beale Air Force Base in okay. Yuba City, California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was born there. About six months later, he was um, stationed in upstate New York, Rome, New York. And so that's where we went. Um, I lived in Rome, New York till I was about four, four-ish. And then he got um, moved again to um, Nebraska to, uh, I believe it's off at Air Force Base, just outside of um, Omaha, Nebraska. So we were there for a short period of time. And then in 1983, he was stationed at Mayther Air Force Base. And so that's what brought me to this oh, area. So okay. I was about eight years old, uh, third grade, came out uh, to my parents live in Orangevale. That's where I grew up in Orangevale. So not far from Ranch oh, Cordova. So for, uh, did, where did you go to school? So uh, grade school, I went to Thomas Coleman Elementary. It's uh, no longer there. I think it's a charter school or a Montessori school now, uh -huh. um, but that's where I went. And then I went to Lewis Pasteur, which is in Orangeville also for middle school. And then I went to Castle Ruble High School. Okay. Yeah. That's in Orangeville as well? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then after school, was that college? So yeah, I went to, um, so I played some sports in, in high school, um, football and ran track. And, you know, I, at the time I thought, um, you know, where am I going to go to college? I wasn't a great student. Um, just had a hard time focusing, yeah. you know, and, and being engaged. And most of that was on me. I mean, I knew what I had to do. I just right. didn't do it. Right. And so going to a four-year school out of high school wasn't really an option. And so I elected, I'm going to go to junior college. Uh, I'm going to um, run track there at American River College, you know, in Carmichael. Yeah. And then from there, maybe I'll go to Sac State or, or see what my options are. And so I went there, I ran track. Um, and my second year of running track, uh, I started working at a, a local banking institution and I started making pretty good money. And I thought, Hey, I'm going to pursue this banking career, see where it takes me. And so I just stopped going to school. I, I dropped out of American river college right. 
Um, I focused on the banking career for a little bit. Uh, and then I realized, hey, and through the encouragement of my parents, I, I need to go back to school. So then I went to Sac State um, and sort of just fumbled my way through Sac State. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Initially, I was a communications major. Um, that didn't seem to be working out. Um, and then that's during that time is when law enforcement started to enter the picture a little bit. So I changed my major to criminal justice because I thought that might be more exciting, um, but still wasn't fully committed to becoming a, a cop or a sheriff's deputy. Um, I thought, well, this banking job is going pretty well. I'm making good money and there's a future in it. So maybe I'll stick to that. Did you like banking? Um, at the time I did, yeah. but then I <clears throat> quickly realized, and by quickly, uh, it was three and a half, four years into right, it. Um, right. So it wasn't that quick, or I wasn't that quick to realize it, that um, sitting behind a desk, and I was in a sales position, so I was cold calling people you know, during their dinner uh, with their families, trying to uh -huh. sell home mortgages and right. mines of credit. So a lot of hangups. Correct. Yeah. And uh, I just thought, I don't know if I can do this for the rest right. of my life. You right, know, I'm, right. I'm staring at a computer all day. Um and I was reasonably successful. You know, I was I was being recognized and rewarded for my efforts. Um, and I made a lot of good connections in that industry and with the customers. But um, I just thought I cannot, I can't do this, you right. know, for the next 40 or 50 right, right. years. And so um, fortunately, you know, whether it was uh, karma or divine intervention or what have you, the law enforcement um, opportunity opened right. up. And uh, that's, I seized that. And man, I'm so glad yeah. I did. So looking back now, how would you describe yourself as a kid growing up? Oh, man. Um, so you, you already know, said you weren't a good student. Yeah, I wasn't a great student. Were um, you a good boy? Like, yeah, uh, I mean, maybe my, my parents would, right. uh, you know, differ in that. I, I, I wasn't – I was a challenge, I think. Yeah. It was a challenge. You know, my – so getting back to my dad being in the military, um, right as I was, you know, entering teenagerhood, my dad got stationed in South Korea and my mom – said, hey, we're not moving to South Korea. And so my dad went to South Korea for, I think, close to four years. He did? Yeah. And so that was, you know, my teenage years. He was there. We stayed, my parents stayed together. I mean, it was, it, you know, there was no um, drama associated. It was just, hey, we have a life in Orangevale, you know, in this area. My sister was a very successful gymnast and they didn't want to leave the gym she was at. And so my mom and my dad agreed that, hey, I'll go to South Korea um, you stay here, raise the family, and then when my time in South Korea is done, obviously I'll be back, and then we'll go from there. And so, my dad lived there, you know, throughout my teenage years, and you know, growing up, not having a father in the house, not having any strong male influences. My mom, it was challenging for my mom, right. and you know, that was because of me. I, and I, it's know, just you and your sister, or do you have other siblings? No, just me and my sister. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and there's a pretty big age gap between my sister and I. Oh, there is. Yeah, she's almost seven years younger. Yeah. So, you know, it was, um, it was tough for my mom and I was involved in activities, you know, yeah. I, I, I did some, um, you know, I was playing football in school right. and things like that, but you know, I didn't have, um, yeah, I was a kid. I wanted to do what I wanted right, to do right. and I didn't want to listen to people. And right. so, you know, thankfully I didn't get in any criminal trouble. Um, and my mom, you know, she was a nurse and working full time. So she was out of the house a lot. So, you know, I was left to, I was a latchkey kid, right. you know? And so, um, thankfully the neighborhood raised me, you know, right. we had some very um, good neighbors. My mom obviously spent a lot of time trying to correct my behavior and encourage me. And so, um, you know, I'm thankful for that because, you know, I had friends, associates in high school that ended up on the other side and, you know, didn't have the life that I've had. And, um, 
I'm, I'm thankful for my parents and for the people that looked out for me. And those experiences, I would imagine, have set you up like in the job, being a cop, you know, you're dealing with kids like that, right? On yep. a day-to-day basis. So it helps you understand a little more what they're going through. Yeah, there was definitely more empathy and sympathy, yeah. you know, and from my point of view, seeing, you know, these kids that weren't getting along with their parents or there was one parent missing or both parents, maybe right. they were in foster care. And I never had to face that challenge of foster care, but I could understand, you know, hey, there's not another parent in the house. Right. Um and I could understand from both sides, you know, right. being a little bit older and more mature and and understanding what my parents had to go through, um, you know, and, and my sister was wildly successful. She was a straight A student. She was a scholarship athlete. Um, she was she was a gymnast. Yeah. And so, you know, there was even a time where she might have been considered for um, the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. Right. She was very successful. Wow. Went to a major university on a full ride scholarship. Wow. Um, overachiever her whole life. She's yeah. a doctor now. Yeah. Uh, she's a doctor? Yeah. She's not a, a medical doctor, but oh, she has her PhD. Her PhD. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, wildly successful. And then here I am fumbling through high school, eventually right. to junior college. Don't really have a solid plan in life. Right. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things. And, and when you look at it now, um, and I, I heard somebody else say this, and it might've been Sheriff Cooper, um, but it's absolutely true. It's not where you start, it's where you end up. Right. And I've always had that thought in my mind, right? right. Maybe not as eloquently right, put right. as that, but I knew that, hey, I'm a success now, but I always wasn't. And how did I get here? Right. You know, it was through listening to people, right? self-education, trial and error. I've failed a lot, you know, right. in, in my life and career, but learning from it, um, surrounding yourself with the right people, um, people that want to lift you up, not hold you down. Uh, and things like that, right? Just general um, knowledge that you can only gain through right. life experience. And this is the last thing on your childhood. Do you, can you tell us a story from your childhood? You're a leader today, right? You lead a department yep. of a lot of people. So do you have a story from your childhood that has it, that impacted the type of leader that you are today? Yes, absolutely. Um, there was a, so my freshman year in high school, I was not getting good grades. Um, I had... Uh, an English teacher who just saw something in me and I don't know what he knew about me. Um, but he pulled me aside one day and he asked me, Hey, have you ever played sports? And I told him, you know, yeah, I did when I was younger, I played soccer, I played baseball, I did Taekwondo for a couple of years, but I never really stuck with anything. And he said, Hey, you should try out for the football team. And it's not something that I'd ever really considered. And, um, you know, I knew my grades weren't great. And so he encouraged me to get my GPA up to an acceptable level, um, to finish my classes and to go to summer school to make myself academically eligible and then to go try out for the football team. And by tryout, I mean, just show up at the time they weren't really cutting anybody. So if you went out there, um, and showed some determination and, and came every day, they would, you'd be on the team. Um, but if not for him, who knows? Things could have been very different. Um, and, but he, I consider him one of my first mentors, right? That yeah. I realized uh, he helped me um, become part of a team. Become part of a team, and and just realize like you're in control of your future. Right. Nobody else is. Right. Um, so maybe don't hang out with these kids. Maybe don't make these decisions. Do something that's going to benefit you. And uh, you know, I'm thankful, you know, for him for yeah. for recognizing that and taking the time because he is, didn't have to. And is he still around? Uh, you know, I've lost touch over yeah, the years. You have. I, you yeah. know, once I left high school, I don't yeah. know right. where he went. But um, you know, looking back at my life, it was definitely a, a yeah. pivotal, was an pivotal person. Yeah. yeah. 
So what's a typical day for the Rancho Cordova police chief? What does a day look like for Chief Tamayo? Oh, man, it varies. Um, you know, and it, it's uh, it starts with a daily brief, you know, what happened the night before, because obviously- That happens every day? Every day, yeah. yeah. So, and it, it's not necessarily formal, but law enforcement's 24 hours a day. And right. so I generally work day shift hours. And so when I leave, the police department and its functions and operations continue. continue right. And so there's a great deal of things that happen in the evening hours, right. overnight, right. over the weekend. And so um, when I come in, my assistant police chief, uh, Lieutenant Nick Gonzalez, and my operations uh, chief, uh, Mike Daniels, we sit down and we talk, hey, what came in over the night? What happened? Where is this project? Where is that project? And we have that um, face-to-face time. We have that. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, it's, you know, it's not formal. It's not have to be an hour long. It could be three minutes. Right. But we talk about, hey, what's the plan for today, generally speaking? What are the things that we need to work on? What needs to be addressed? How can we make this agency better? Um, how can we make our employees better? Um, and, you know, the, the day-to-day functions, how can we be more efficient? Right. And So here, like here, we plan. So we come in and we know we have projects to work on. Mm-hmm. So we might be working on a film, on a kids program. How the police department, you're not just waiting for calls to come in and respond to calls, right? So there's a lot of plans. Well, what are the, some of the things that you plan? Like what is what goes into running a police department? So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, you know, and I'll, I'll touch on a little bit of it. Um, we have our partnership, obviously, with the city. They're extremely supportive um, and a great resource to us. So and that's not just city staff. That's uh, city council, the vice mayor, the mayor. They really support. Um, the police department, and that is valuable in that we get the messaging, the support from the city that goes out to the community. And so, and you touched on at the beginning of the interview, the support and the um, community engagement that we get at the Ranch Cordova Police Department is second to none. It's outstanding. And that's because of not only the hard work that the men and women of the police department do, but that's because of the support from our elected officials, uh, the support from the sheriff's office, the support from uh, the city staff and the city manager, that really is the ingredients for a successful um, operation. And, and as chief, how much contact do you have with the city manager? Do you talk to him daily, weekly, or? Yeah, daily. Daily? Uh, yep. You do? Yeah, daily. And it might not be a formal conversation. It might be a text message. Wow. Um, it might be, hey, this happened, just so you're aware. Oh, okay. It might be him reaching out and saying, hey, what are we doing about this? Or did you hear about that? Okay. But there is a very back and forth, very... Um, uh, cooperative relationship there. So you're informing him of crime issues that may have happened that night. You tell him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You do. Yeah, yeah, because you know he's running the entire city, and a function of that city is law enforcement and public safety, and so he really needs to know. Um, and he's very involved, right? He wants to know, and that cooperative relationship. I think has led to the successes that the yeah. city and the PD right. have, have had together. Right. Because we've interviewed, um, like last week, we had um, the head of neighborhood services here who oversees code enforcement, animal services, et cetera. And he tells me, you know, the city is very into making this a safe and good city for everybody. So I can see how Micah would, wanna, would want to be involved. What would cause them to call you in the middle of the night? Uh, it could be, um, you know, a news story, right? And we try and be proactive about that and let them know ahead of time. But, you know, today with social media, sometimes a news story hits before it's a news story. Right. And so they may reach out, hey, what's going on here? It could be a major injury accident. It could be 
You know? No, no. I mean, you as the chief, you go home. Mm -hmm. What would they call you for anything during the night, or is it only a certain things that they would call you? So on? yeah, I mean, you're. You know, and I don't want to say routine because nothing's routine, but your average call for service, I'm not getting notified. Right, right. But if there's multiple units responding, if there's an injury to a citizen or to an officer. They'll call you? They'll call me. Yeah. They will? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Two in the morning, three in the morning? Yep. Yeah. The phone's right there by my head. Wow. And, and you know, I've answered it, you know, late at night. And, um, but it's important, you know, yeah. because uh, I, I remember as a patrol deputy, um, the engagement or non-engagement of leadership. Right. And, you know, if it's two in the morning and then you see your captain or your chief show up, you know that it means something to that person. Right. And then it, you know, you're supported as, as a, a patrol deputy. And what would cause you to get up and go? Oh man, it could be anything, but, uh, you know, some of the major ones are a, a major injury, a uh, major officer injury, um, you know, a major incident that, that the news is going to be out there or that's going to really affect the community. Right. Um, there's so like a, a murder would cause you to? It depends. You know, yeah. um, the sheriff's office has a dedicated homicide unit. Right. And so they're the experts, right? Right. And so they're going to come out. I may not come to a homicide because that's an unnecessary distraction. Right. Um, now, if there's an officer-involved shooting, I'm going to be there. Right. right? So that, that would be the difference. Right. Yeah. So on, on taking over the department, what were some of the – and you've been here, so you know this city very well. But now you're the chief, right? You're the boss. It's very different. What were some of the issues and challenges that were facing the officers out on the street and the department in general when you took over? So it's only been two months, yeah. um, and I was gone for near a year at yeah. my other assignment um, when I promoted. But I think the major um, things that the officers are seeing are uh, mental health issues. Yeah, um, They're more predominant now. Right. Um, obviously, the homelessness issue. Right. And I'm going to talk to you about that. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, and also, you know, everywhere you go, there's – and I saw this transition. I think officers now are conditioned and um, better prepared now. But several years ago, the advent of camera phones, you know, and, and a camera always being right. thrust in your face and being confronted. Right. Officers are much more educated now. We have right. proactive training. Um, we talk to them about that. And look, our officers have body-worn cameras. There's surveillance cameras everywhere. There's traffic cameras. People have cameras in their phones. So it's just one of those things, be used to being on camera. And right. if you're doing the right thing, you're operating within law and policy and you're treating people well, yeah. then you'll be fine. Yeah. And so I, I believe that our officers know that. They've always known that, but- they had to get used to have a camera thrust in their So the face. biggest challenge now is scrutiny. Scrutiny. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the laws are continually changing. Right. Um, you know, January 1st, a couple yeah. weeks ago. Well, I saw that. Yeah. There was a host of new laws. Yeah, yeah. Some of them directed at law enforcement. Yeah. Which yeah. I always look forward to those new laws yeah. in the first of the year in yeah. California. What are some of the crime issues, though, that, that we suffer from here? So Rancho's a, a great city to live in. Um, you know, crime is everywhere, unfortunately. You can go to the smallest town or the biggest city, and you're going to have crime. I think the thing that affects Rancho the most is homelessness because it's visible. You know, yeah. you go down the street, you see somebody pushing a shopping cart right. or sometimes yeah. two or three, um, and, and they see that every day. Um, we do have retail theft here. I don't think we have it to the scale of some other municipalities. Um, and in fact, I know we don't, but there is retail theft, and, and that is – Something that, but that's something you don't really deal with, for for an, like Sheriff Cooper told me, which was staggering to me, like nine hundred dollars is the cap now, right? Nine hundred and fifty. Nine hundred fifty. Yeah. So, so if someone steals five hundred dollars, oh well. Yeah, 
You so don't, you don't respond to that. We do respond to that. So you know, in, in Rancho, because it's a contract, we we have the ability to address, um, or we're asked to address some of these quality of life issues and and whether it's a big crime or a small crime. Now we can't know every petty theft that happens. No. But when it's called and reported to us, we certainly go. Um, as as you know, and the citizens here know, most of our retail shopping is in a centralized location, the right. Folsom, Olson, Zinfandel right. area. Yeah. And so we have a uh, problem-oriented policing officer specifically assigned to that area. And she follows up with all the business owners. She okay. talks to the major retailers there. Um, and we have a pretty cooperative effort amongst right. the retailers and, and our um, police department with reporting those things and identifying people that are doing the stealing and right. citing them when we can. The unfortunate part is once we cite them, what happens? They right. get a court date. Do they go? Yeah. Do they not go? Right. How many times are they going to go to court for stealing before right. there's a stiffer penalty? Right. I mean, 20, 30, 40 times. It, right, it, right. You know, it, and do we suffer like you see in this country now in the big cities where you have gangs of people just come in and take everything and leave? That's very difficult to, you know, to combat. Do we have that problem here? No. The organized I mean, thing? No. Yeah. There's not a ton of organized retail theft as far as, you know, the the takeovers where multiple people come in. Now, I will say um, there probably is organized retail theft in that a specific group of people, their job is to steal, right? right. That, hey, we're going to go to this target right. and take these things. Right. Um, we've certainly had repeat offenders and seen people that- develop patterns. And, right. and we address that. You know, Ranch Cordova Police Department has their own investigative unit. Right. We have four detectives and um, they follow up on the retail theft. Right. And, you know, recently we've been able to identify specific people through video surveillance, through right. victim witness statements, or even through citations that we've given right. that they've displayed a pattern of right. theft. Right. And so then we can put a case together, present that to the DA's office right. or right. our in-house, we have an in-house um, district attorney liaison. Um, who's a DA, right. and we present that case to her, and then she's able to right. file appropriate charges. We had Sheriff Cooper on this program last year, and he told us that upon taking office as the sheriff, he cited two issues that were most important to him when he came in. These two issues are the most important to me. One was homelessness, and one was illegal guns. And then homelessness is something that whenever we have someone like you we something that's important to me you know homelessness is a terrible thing i think mm -hmm. and the young guys here who work for me you know they're younger so they they're much more more into the homeless um helping the homeless issue um the problem with the unhoused is a huge problem go to i live in downtown sacramento and it's huge there i mean every corner there's tent cities um what two what issues are important to you as the chief here? Is it homelessness or is it something else? So yeah, homelessness would be part of it. I mean, my my thought and my hope is uh, I want Ranch Cordova to be a livable place. I want it to be welcoming to everybody. I want people to feel safe when they go for a walk. I want people to be able to go down the sidewalk and not have to walk around a tent or... Which is something I often do. Correct. Walking you know. my dog, I have to... Yeah, and, and you know, yeah. that's, I mean... Yeah, it's... I'm, it's yeah. It's tough, you know, and yeah. I'm speaking on you know behalf of law enforcement, right? right in right. Rancho, um, and I know the homelessness issue is not just a criminal issue, right. and you're not going to arrest your way out of it. I've heard that over and over again, and I believe that it, it's got to be a cooperative effort. Um, but you know, I want Rancho to be safe, and, and so how do we get there? Homelessness obviously is an issue, and you know, by being safe, 
it's one thing to say we're safe and you look at stats and we are, but when you see blight and you see people, you know, with sometimes thousands of pounds of trash, including drug waste and human excrement, yeah. that does not feel safe, right? No, and maybe that person, maybe that person living in that environment is not going to do anything to anybody, but as an average citizen, yeah. that doesn't feel safe. No, and no, so, I mean, it's not good. Yeah. yeah, I want people to feel safe. I, I want to reduce, you know, violent crime. I want to um, make connections with the community, the youth in the community. You know, that's why we have the Police Activities League, which, right. you know, you're a partner of now right. and, and yeah. going to be producing some um, stuff this summer, which is exciting. Um, the school resource offices, uh, officers, the Police Activities League, all of it. You know, I think the more people know about law enforcement, the more comfortable they are. Right. Um, and we can, you know, help educate people right. on what we do. It's, it's not a secret. But homelessness, is it an issue here? Because you don't really, I don't see homelessness here unless it's hidden. I mean, I travel around the city. I don't see tents. Yeah. I mean, I re I don't think I've, I can't really think of an, an ish, a time that I've seen a tent in the city of Rancho Cordova. Now, is that because if a cop is driving by and a tent pops up, do you deal with it immediately? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Every officer knows, you know, that, hey, um, there's an image to uphold. Right. And, you know, maybe that person living in that tent, um, Maybe they haven't committed a crime per se, but maybe they need help right. and they just don't know how to get it. And a, lot so, of, a lot of people have sympathy with the homeless, yeah. the, the public. In general, they have sympathy. Mm -hmm. It's like a two-edged sword, right? They're a blight, as you say, especially if they're outside your house. But on the other hand, I think most people understand that you know you could be in that position. A lot of people can be in that position very easily. You know, People live in paycheck to paycheck. Sure. So a cop is driving by. And he's going down Folsom Bull. Oh, he's going down one of the side streets. And then he comes across someone in a tent. That person found themselves homeless through no fault of their own. They have nowhere to go. So they pitch a tent just so they have some shelter. What's that cop going to do? So we'll stop. One, make sure they're okay. You know, especially this time of year with freezing temperatures, right. rain. Um, and then we'll talk to them, find out what's going on, where they came from. Clearly, you know, they just showed up there. What resources that they have at their disposal or what resources we could give them. Uh, you mentioned Russ Ducharme. Yeah. You know, he was here last week. Yeah. Um, he runs a team of uh, homeless navigators, navigators yeah. who have um, multiple resources at their fingertips. Uh, maybe they're suffering from mental health and we can hook them up with mental health resources. Right. Maybe it's a addiction problem. Um, maybe it's just that they had a job two weeks ago, got laid off. Um, maybe there's a way we can help them on their feet. You know, we've had, Officers buy people a tank of gas because they were they found themselves homeless. Um, they were trying to get back to an area where they have friends, family, and resources. And so while en route, they ran out of gas. They ran out of food for money. And now they're stuck in Rancho and right. they're just hanging out. And right. so, you know, waiting for somebody to come help them. And so the officers will do what they can. You know, like I said, we had a, uh, one of our sergeants last two weeks ago. Actually, it was over the holidays, but we found out about it two weeks ago. Um there was a local vet who found himself on some downtimes. He had come to the um, hospital at Mather to seek some services. And after treatment, couldn't get back to where he was coming from. And so he was living in his car. And uh, we got told about him through a call for service. One of our sergeants went over there, found out what was going on, found out that he just simply needed some money to get to an area that he had you know, some resources through friends and family. So they filled up his gas tank and, and off he went. Wow. So, you know, uh, law enforcement involvement in homelessness, sometimes 
I think people think we're just there to write tickets or just there to arrest people. That's not what we're doing. Right. No. We, we try and really empathize. We yeah. try and help where we can. Yeah. But we do have a function, right? And, yeah, and sometimes of course. that function is no, it's, it's very it's very, very difficult. Yeah. yeah. It's a diff but what's the end game with the guy in the tent? What's gonna happen? Is the cop gonna drive away? and come back and make sure he's gone? What's the end game? The end game is to find treatment, find resources, <laughs> get them off the street. Um, if there's criminal behavior afoot or if there's a warrant, then sometimes we arrest um, or we write that ticket. Um, but, you know, we don't, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to live on the side of the road. There's car accidents. There's people walking. I, you know, we've seen and heard feedback from the citizens that, hey, I had to step into the street to get around, right. you know, these shopping carts and this and pile car, of refuse yeah. and whatever else, yeah. and, or the car, you know, with stuff spilling out of it. Right. And so um, we want to address those things. And if it's criminal, we're going to cite, right. you know, and we're going to help these people try and get help for themselves. Right. Ultimately, it comes down to them. They have to want the help, but we offer every single time. We offer whether it's our patrol officers, our homeless outreach team, whether we're working collaboratively with Russ's team. Or, you know, there's a county homeless team that we work with. Um, it, you know, it's it's got to be a widespread approach, and law enforcement is just a piece of that. So that's an instance where you work closely with the city. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And homelessness, there's a lot of mental um, problems me um, with the homeless, right? I mean, there's a lot of um, mental issues. So police officers are trained to wear many hats. Um, but understanding mental health issues, I think, is probably the most difficult. If you're a cop, you're not you're not a psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, Chief Lester from SAC PD was also here, mm -hmm. and her obviously there. That's a big issue for them. And she established a full time mental health team within her police department. Yep. And she told me that that is really helping now because when they come across mental health issues, they know how to deal with it. And they have a licensed social worker on staff with them that helps them. Rancho, we have something similar in neighborhood services. Um, do we have anything to help combat mental health issues? Yeah, absolutely. Or is it all the same? It comes under the same umbrella. No, I mean, it's, it's cooperative with that. Uh, so I guess it would be under the umbrella. But we have a standalone um, team of a licensed uh, clinician, mental health clinician, and a deputy or a Ranch Cordova police officer. They also have it in the sheriff's office um, outside of the Ranch Cordova police department. Uh, but they ride together and they respond solely to mental health calls for service. We've had that program for over three years. Okay. Um, we just recently recognized our uh, mental health clinician okay. for some efforts that um, she was a part of regarding a uh, person who was having a mental health crisis in the middle of the roadway, you know, in their car. And it could have ended very badly. Um, but through her training and her dedication and patience, she was able to talk this person um, down wow. and we were able to get them some help right. um, and, you know, uh, potentially save their life or the life of, you know, a citizen or, right. or one of the officers responding to the call. So it was a right. pretty hairy situation right. for about 15, 20 minutes. But because of that partnership and, and her knowledge, um, we were able to avoid anything tragic. I, I think... Um... And I've heard from friends, you know, they drive and they see the way the police are treating the homeless. And listen, there's good and there's bad in everything, right? So there's the majority of cops are good, but you've got some that are, you know, maybe need a little more training. Um, do you think police officers are sympathetic to the plight of the homelessness in general, 
are they sympathetic, do you think? Or is it just part of, cops are tough, right? They see everything. Sure. And you as the chief, how do you expect officers to deal with people like that? So it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter where you came from, where you're going. If you're living in a mansion right on the river or if you're living in a tent on Folsom Boulevard, my demand and my expectation is that you treat everybody the golden rule, right? You treat people how you want to be treated. Right. You treat people with empathy, with respect. Um, you look out for their best interests um, and do what you need to do. It's one call at a time. There's always going to be calls coming in. We're going to have contact. But when you can make a connection in the community um, that's positive, uh, it pays off in dividends when something happens that we have no control over. And so um, absolutely my expectation, you know, one of the things that when I was the assistant police chief that we started doing and now as the police chief that we're continuing, whenever a new person comes into the Ranch Cordova Police Department, the command staff, including myself and the assistant police chief and the operations lieutenant, we sit down with those employees and we let them know the expectations. And part of that is how we treat people. You yeah. must, you shall treat people well because it's beneficial to you. It's beneficial to the agency, but most importantly, it's beneficial to the public. Right. We're providing a service and we should do so to the best of our ability. Um, Sheriff Cooper talked a lot about drug courts, that when the drug courts were there, they were very helpful because I think a lot of drug issues as well in, in homelessness. Correct. Do you think drug courts should be reintroduced? And have you have you ever had experience with a drug court and the benefits of it? Yeah, absolutely. So when I worked in patrol, so that was 2004 through about almost 2012, spent quite a amount of time in patrol, uh, possession of drugs for personal use, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, rock cocaine, um, was a felony. Right. And so what would happen is you would arrest somebody. They, they might only have a couple grams or a gram right. or half a gram, but they would go to jail. Right. Um, and you know, if you look at that in a vacuum, it seems like, well, that's overly harsh taking this person who has right. a, a drug problem to jail, right. but you have to look a couple layers deeper. How are they funding this lifestyle? How are they getting the money to buy this, these drugs? More often than not, it's through theft, right? right? Theft from a family member, theft from the general public, theft from stores, something that we all end up paying for. And so what happens is they would be arrested. They'd go to court. Uh, they would then be assigned to drug court. And instead of being in custody, they'd be mandated to be successful through drug court. Right. Or if they weren't, they would go back to jail and right. spend their time. So they would have to go to treatment. They would have to go to treatment yeah. and they'd have to be successful in treatment. Right. And that's the most important so part. So you've seen that. You've, yeah. you've experienced that. Mm -hmm. Why are they not? Why is that not an issue now? Why do we not have drug courts? You know, that's uh, probably a, a better a question for the sheriff, yeah. a politician. Um, right. I don't know all the intricacies behind it or why it was gotten rid of. You know, I, I do recall um, and I'm aware of, you know, prison realignment and moving, you know, uh, depopulation of the prisons. That probably led to some of it because right. where are we going to put these right. people, yeah. right? If, if they aren't successful in drug court and they have to be in custody, we don't have the jail space anymore because right. we've taken in this influx from state prison, nonviolent, you know, right. offenders. And now they're living in um, our jail in uh, Elk Grove for eight, nine, 10, 12 years. We have people there in a place that wasn't designed. In the jail? In the jail, yeah. That long? That long, absolutely. Ooh. Because they don't qualify to be in state prison. And so when we did the prison realignment, um, when that was mandated by uh, Assembly Bill 109, uh, the people that didn't qualify to be in state prison anymore but couldn't be released came to county jails. 
And so thankfully the Sacramento County had two jails. We have the main one downtown. And then we had the um, jail in Elk Grove that was built and designed to house people that were low-level misdemeanor offenders sentenced to less than a year in jail. And now we have people that are in prison that don't qualify to be in state prison, but are still some sophisticated criminals with you know a, a lifetime of um, crime under their belts. And, and now they're staying out there for wow. multiple year sentences. So that can't be good. No, it's, it's a tough challenge. <laughs> yeah. So just switch gears. Something I know that you know a little about is recruitment and training, because I've read that you have prioritized training throughout your career, unless I've read wrong. Yeah. But, and you've instructed um, numerous courses, I think, including principal policing and the sheriff leadership program. Yes. Yeah. So what are those two things first? So principal policing was an initiative, um, sort of a joint initiative um, through California Post and um, COPS, which is a federal program. Uh, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, but treating people with respect, transparency, giving them a voice, allowing them to speak. And you taught that. I taught that class. Yeah. yeah I taught yeah. it to the sheriff's office, um, probably um, over a quarter, six, 700 people in the sheriff's office. I, okay. I taught that class to Taught it for over three years, um, once a month. And is it a day class? It was during the daytime. Yeah, it's eight yeah. hours, yeah. eight hours yeah. long. Um, and you also talk about um, there's a history lesson involved. How did policing get to where it was? Where did it start? How were we seen um, throughout the years? What were we used as as a tool? Um, and and how we've come through that and, and changed and evolved. Um, and then there was also a portion on implicit bias and what it is um, developed by um, Stanford. And so, you know, we did our best to teach that as well. Um, but that class, uh, I learned a lot in that class. Yeah. You know, teaching, you always learn through teaching. Right. Um, and I learned a lot of stories, you know. But you're not teaching recruits. You're teaching, it's a course that everybody has yep. to take. Yeah, yeah I was uh, uh, sworn and even yeah. professional staff yeah. Yeah. were in there and we were teaching them. Good. And I, That's I, good. I had the um, opportunity to not only teach that class to deputies, to sergeants, but also to lieutenants, captains, chiefs, and uh, our executive staff yeah. in the sheriff's office. So I learned a lot. And is the sheriff leadership program how it sounds? You're teaching people to become leaders? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it was uh, an initiative started by a now retired lieutenant, um, but he saw the need that, hey, we're promoting these people and we need to give them more leadership experience, um, leadership training. Um, and so it's handpicked. Um, you have to go through an application process and then you're you're picked from that. Um, it's wildly popular um, and you go in and it's a multi-session program, multi-day program. And, you know, we talk about um, leadership in general. My particular topic is self-deception in leadership. So that's what I teach. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, organizational values and on and on and on. Yeah. And it culminates um, in a graduation where the class even elects somebody to speak on their behalf. And they give up and they, they get up and they give a speech. And um, it's very, it's, it's a great program. And right. many people that have participated in that program have gone on to be um, whether sergeants or civilian supervisors and even managers now, because we've only been doing it about four years. I right. Think, so. Sheriff Cooper, Chief Lester, and I think uh, Brandon Luke, um, I asked them what their biggest problem is. And all three of them told me recruitment, mm -hmm. like shortage of officers. Yep. Um, uh, Sheriff Cooper told me that the Sacramento Sheriff uh, Department had 200 vacancies then when he was talking to me. I'm not sure 
now. And that's also an issue amongst many police. I read that all police departments are suffering from recruiting. So a couple of questions. Do you have a recruitment problem still, or has that resolved itself? And as the chief of the department, is training important? Can that help with with recruitment issues? Yeah. So Rich Grove, a police department, because it's a contract. Right. There's a list of people that want right. to come. So, yeah, but the sheriff's locally, department in general. But the sheriff's department in general, um, yes, it still is a problem, but it's yeah. not as big of a problem. Sheriff right. Cooper mentioned it, and you know, it's been a year, I think, since he's been on the program, um, or you know, maybe about what ten months or something like that. And since then, um, there's we started a full time recruit, recruiting unit. They've been doing great work. Um, my assignment prior to this was I was the commander of the. Sheriff's Office uh, Training and Education Division. And part of that was pre-employment backgrounds and recruiting. And so our recruiters were everywhere, every day. I mean, they were right. up and down the state. They were going to other academies. They were going to other agencies. And what you saw in the programs that they started, there's been a huge influx and in interest in coming to work for the Sheriff's Office, not only from the general public, but from other agencies. And so I think law enforcement in general is starting to recover from the lack of um, uh, want to become an, a law enforcement officer. Obviously, that is not remedied itself yet, but I think we're we're turning a corner. Right. Um, I think through the hard work of regional, state, um, local, or, or or even nationwide law enforcement, through community engagement um, and activism, right. and people really understanding what cops do. I, I think we're turning the corner. Yeah. We're not there yet. Right. Right. But it, I think it's looking better. So. This is going to be a diplomatic question for you. I know it is because every time I ask it. Um, so I think morale probably was a, a, is maybe is an issue. And the reason I say that, a couple of years ago in this country, there were some high-profile cases, right? Mm -hmm. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Freddie Gray, et cetera. And those spurred the Black Lives Matter movement. And then we have calls for defund the police, mm -hmm. whatever that means, get rid of the police, which I think – you read leads to lower morale amongst police and it causes people to quit, right? They say, I'm, if you can quit, you just quit. Sure. So two or three years later now, because we've moved on now, mm -hmm. we're two or three years later. In your opinion, has that improved? Has, the, has that, the morale, the, the public perception of the police, not just Rancho, but in general, has the, do you think that has, has changed or do you think it's still there? No, I think it's changed, right? Yeah. Um, when you look... Even nationwide, I think it's changed. The sheriff's office and Rancho Cordova Police Department always had a very good relationship with the community. We had high approval ratings whenever right. we did no, um, surveys, uh, and that's because of the hard work of yeah. exec staff and leadership. You know, long before me, right. and the the you know the programs that they started and continued with, and the the new partnerships that they continuously seek. And so, I think here we were lucky because we had that. But you know. Um, there was a lot of damage done to law enforcement yeah. through that. And some of it um, are because of us, because of law enforcement, because of yeah. things that we were doing. Right. I will say law enforcement in general in California is always um, at the tip of the um, reform sword. We're always looking to get better, to learn from our mistakes, um, to deliver service better. And so when we saw some of the legislation from the feds or even the state, the sheriff's office Ranch Cordova PD by default, we were already doing that. So when they mandated A, B, or C to us, it was no big deal because right. we were doing it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a morale issue, right? Uh, I started 
right before 9-11. Right. And then 9-11 happened. It was an all-time high for law enforcement right. or first responders in general. Right. Man, we had so much support, right? right? You couldn't go anywhere if they found out you were no. a cop. Right. Lunch was on me, you know, yep, yep. whatever it was. Yep. And then 20 years later, things took right. a, a 180 degree, right? Because so, of the actions of some. Because of the actions yeah. of some law enforcement. Yeah. And so- yeah. Uh, and the and the cameras and the cameras, yeah. But you know, we faced that before. We had the Rodney King incident, right. you know, uh, uh, in the '90s, and and that happened. Um, so, I don't think it's new. I just think it got renewed um, at attention. The media seized on it. Um, and look, a lot of good things happened because of that, right? right. Um, those are tragic incidents. Yeah. Nobody should have lost their lives, and right. that shouldn't have happened. But it did, right. and so. What can we do? Well, we can right. learn from those mistakes. We can get better. We can provide better training. We can hire higher quality employees. We can um, do early intervention. We can um, set expectations from the get-go. And I think that's what you're seeing. There's right. a professionalization in law enforcement right. over the last 20 years um, that has really taken a hold, and it's it's a good thing. Yeah. And talking to people, friends, they don't really trust the process you know, they say, oh, well, if you make a complaint against this officer, it's going to go nowhere because they all take care of each other. Mm -hmm. So here we are. You're the chief. Tell us how seriously is a complaint taken? I complain about Officer A, and I come and make an official complaint. Am I going to be, well, whatever, he's complaining, or is it going to be taken very seriously? And you, as the leader, do you take it very seriously? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'll give you some unique insight. I've been an internal affairs investigator while I was a sergeant. I was in charge of internal affairs as a lieutenant, um, the unit itself. Um, and then now as the police chief, right? So I, I have three unique experiences. I've investigated complaints. I've managed, distributed, and finalized complaints. And then and I have to deal- you've investigated police officers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As, yeah, yeah. as a internal affairs investigator. And so I will tell you, the sheriff's office is really serious about how we deal with complaints. Every complaint that we receive, including Rancho Cordova PD, because it's a function or a unit within right. the sheriff's office, yeah. that complaint goes to a central repository to the Internal Affairs Bureau. It's every complaint. Every complaint that yeah. we get goes there. Uh, they vet it. They look at it. They decide what the seriousness is. Is, is it a Category 1 complaint right. or is it a Category 2? Right. If it's a Category 1, then somebody at Internal Affairs, meaning an Internal Affairs investigator, investigates that complaint. So- Nobody in Ranch Cordova PD even touches it. It's solely investigated by internal affairs. Right. If it's a category two complaint, that means it's a lower level complaint. Doesn't mean it's not serious, just right. didn't reach the severity of yeah. a category one. So cop someone says the cop was rude to me. Correct. Yeah. Like discourteous yeah. treatment. Yeah. That comes back to us. Uh an impartial sergeant is assigned to it, and then they investigate it. They contact the complainant, they do an interview, they review body worn camera. They eventually talk to the officer, and then they make an initial assessment. Hey, the police officer was rude, or the police officer wasn't, right. based on right. body-worn camera, right. statements, right. whatever it yep. may be. Then that information is um, gone up the chain of command, and then various people, um, including myself, but even after me, review it and either concur or disagree. If everybody says, hey, no, the officer wasn't rude, then it goes down as an exonerated right. or unfounded right. complaint. If the officer was rude, it's, then it's sustained, yeah. and then there could be discipline, right. and that could range from a verbal counseling all the way up to termination right, in some right. cases. And every complaint touches you, like meaning that you know about every complaint. Yeah, I review every complaint yeah. yep. at some point. Yeah. yeah. 
So as leader of a, a large department that borders some important cities, Sacramento, it's an important capital of California, there's a lot of stuff. And then the smaller Folsom, I think we bought a Folsom Citrus Heights, yep. right? Are you in contact with other chiefs like Kathy Lester and the chief of Folsom? Do you guys get together, talk, share intelligence? Is that like an ongoing thing? Yes, absolutely. Um, not only through email and other media sources, but even in person, we meet um, fairly regularly and talk about, you know, trends, what we're seeing, um, areas for improvement, thoughts and ideas. Um, we're very proactive in that nature. Uh, I think one thing that's in common with all the leaders in law enforcement in the area and the region is that we want to get better. Um, we want to deliver a better service. We want to become more efficient. Um, we want Sacramento to be a destination place. We want it to be a safe place to live. Um, we raised our families here. Our families live here. Uh, we want to continue to do business here, and we want everybody to feel safe. A business leader takes over a company and gets made CEO, and they say, okay, well, now I'm the CEO. I've always wanted to implement these changes. Did you come here with that view? Is there something that you would like to do in Rancho that hasn't been done? Or is it just continuing with the status quo and keeping it because it's good, you know, things yeah. are good. What What is your ambition? So there's an external and internal um, answer to that question. Externally, I wanna build off of what was built before me. You know, Chief Luke did a fantastic job as the Chiefs before him did. And I think if you look historically, we've just been getting better. Uh, every, every administration, every employee that comes through the door, um, every year we improve and that's my goal is improve right leave this place better than you found right. it externally respond to changes in laws yeah um, respond to changes in public opinion um, increase community engagement and support uh, that's what i want to do externally right. internally um, one of my main goals is to create um, a career pathway for our employees through planning through goal setting through mentorship and so one of the things i asked uh, almost day one of all my managers and supervisors was we need to come up with a goal sheet um, and ex uh, for our employees so they can write down what they want to do. Some employees have big dreams, right? They want to be the next sheriff. They want to go to detectives. They want to be on the SWAT team. And we have other employees who've never thought about it right. or who have no goals. That, hey, right. I just want to be here, yeah, like which it. is fine. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, let's get better while you're here. So right. what can we do to get you better? Right. And so creating a plan for them for success not only helps that employee, but it helps the organization. It helps Ranch Cordova Police Department because my hope is like me, they get exposed to the PD, Ranch Cordova Police Department yeah. at some level, and then they want to come back again and again and right. again. And that's why I've been here five times Right, is because I love this agency. I love this community. I love the sheriff's office as well. Yeah, um, But I've had some really rewarding experiences here in Ranch Cordova proper. And not only the relationship between city staff, city council, the community, the citizens, the business owners, people like yourself, that's what keeps me coming back here. Right. And, and I'm honored to be here right. You know, now as the police chief, something right. that 10 years ago, five right, years right. ago, three years ago, I never no. thought would have happened. And now I have this opportunity. Right. Um, so a couple more policing things. And um, I think young people, as, as, as a police agency, a police department, I think you have to grab young people, right? You have to show them that the police are not bad. They're good. They're your friends. They're here to help you. How it, We work closely with PAL, the Police Activities League. And I've met Jason Kimbrell, obviously, mm -hmm. and Sarai Loudon. 
who run Powell and Lieutenant Rich Meredith, yes. and they're very devoted to Powell. and And I see how they how they re, um, they um, deal with the young kids. You know, so how do you feel about that? How important is Powell to you, and how important is the outreach to youth to to educate them about what the police does? It's very important, right? I mean, getting that connection with the youth um, not only educates them on who law enforcement is, what they do, and, and allow them to be more comfortable in that environment, but it educates our officers because right. things are constantly changing. You right. know, if, if, like I have a daughter, she tells me things and I have no idea, never heard of it before, right? right. But then all of a sudden it's got 5 million views on TikTok right. or Instagram or whatever right. it is. And so that's a, a, a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and it's not just PAL. I, I ask that every officer engage with the community. Um, you know as well as I do, and but for the listeners, the city and Ranch Cordova Police Department do an immense amount of community engagement. Um, I, yeah, I was just reminiscing with my assistant police chief over the holidays from um, Thanksgiving through the day before Christmas. Every single day, we were doing something in the community. And it, that's exceptionally busy because right. of the holidays, but right. that doesn't end at the holidays. Right. This month, there'll be more. Next month, right. there'll be more. And right. so it's continuous. And I ask that even though your assignment, if you're assigned to PAL or the school resource officer, you have day-to-day contact with the youth, doesn't mean our deputies can't. doesn't mean our patrol officers can't. Right. doesn't mean, um, you know, and I'm talking about East Division as well, right? We have them come in. Um, they should seek opportunity, and they will, and they do to engage with the youth. And on that note, we just had a operation on Friday with our motor unit. So we have a, a you know motorcycle yeah, team. Yeah. And what they did is um, they went out and we enforced uh, helmet laws uh, for the youth, but we didn't enforce them through tickets. We enforced them through education and we gave out free bicycle helmets wow. to kids, you know, riding you to and from school. Yeah, that was Oh, you Friday. mean for... Push bikes, yeah, push not bikes. for motorbikes. No, not not motorbikes. Oh, no. oh, oh, this is an engagement with the youth. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So we went to Mills Middle School and a, and a um, couple other schools. Okay, and we just set up out there. And when we saw, uh, you know, a child without a helmet, we contacted him and said, "Hey, we want to give you a free okay, helmet." Well, here's a stupid question: yeah. You have to wear a helmet if you're on a bicycle. Yes. Oh, that's the yeah. law. Yeah, state law. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So I, I mean, always wear a helmet, yeah. but that's because I just don't want to hit my head if I'm on a bike. But I, someone who works here, who isn't here, but Jose, uh-huh. he refuses to wear a helmet yeah. on a bicycle. Yeah. So he has to. He could. He could get cited. You know, oh. No one's going to go to jail over it, but he would okay. get a ticket. Um, okay. Usually, so you go and you actively enforce it, but in a good way. You yeah. say, hey, you should have a helmet. Here's a helmet. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. And so that's just something, you know, hey, we have the discretion to issue a citation. We don't want to do that. We want people to be safe, right? That's right. our overall goal. And so instead of getting a ticket, the kids got a helmet. Yeah, yeah, good. So we're almost at the end. I just have a couple of quick sort of management questions that interest me. And then we okay. get – we. I, I hope you've listened to this show because we do a series of quick fire little fun questions at the end. Yeah. But before we get to those, tell me what personally – you know, you, listen, listening to you, you're accomplished, right? You joined the police 20 years ago, 24, and now here you are in a high position. What personally drives you? Um, I mentioned it earlier, but leaving this place better than I found it. Yeah. Uh, that's something that's been drilled into me my whole life. You know, my my parents said that. Um, you know, another thing, if you're going to do it, do it right. What, do you know, it the well. effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so having that base, you know, 
imbued by my parents and then moving into the sheriff's office and hearing it again, it's just been a reoccurring theme. Right. And so that's my goal really is, right. is um, leave it better than I found it and help people. Right. Um, I'm nobody special. I wasn't, uh, you know, I don't have a PhD. Um, I'm not exceptionally um, brilliant. Well, sometimes uh, that's better, by the way. Yeah, it could be, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but there's nothing about me that sets me right. apart from anybody else. Right. Uh, but I've been given opportunity. Right. Um, you know, Sheriff Cooper, when I worked at the jail as a brand new deputy, he gave me the opportunity. Right. And so I was able to seize on that and build on that. Right. And then somebody else gave me an opportunity and then somebody else. And that's what led me to being where I'm at right. is because I was given the opportunity. So. And this is, I always think, an interesting question if someone asks me, because you, the, the natural reaction is say none. But what mistakes have you made? Oh, man, there's been a lot. Uh, there's been a lot. I think the biggest mistakes I made were not listening to people more experienced than me and, and heeding their advice. Yeah. Um, that's number one. You know, th there's other mistakes I've made and I probably, sh you know, I, I, I know I shouldn't have made them. Right. Um, maybe I didn't see that at the time. Right. And the reason for that, if I, you know, look deep inside simply because I didn't listen to people who were giving me advice on how to avoid them because I thought I knew better because of inexperience, because of immaturity, um, my youthfulness, whatever it was, I, I just thought I knew it was right instead of listening to those more experienced. Right. And, and that's what led me down that path. And then finally, before we get to the, to the end, do you think that you're born, do you think one is born a leader or do you have to learn to be a leader? And I think this is a good question for you, given how you attain to where you are. Do you think you were born to be in the position you're in or did you learn over time to be in this position? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, generally speaking, I, I think some people are born leaders. Um, some people are, um, you know, provided with leadership through rank or through a position or through promotion. And I some, pe some people develop leadership. Right. Um, for me, I don't know if I was born a leader or not. You know, when I was young and in high school, I was a bit of a follower. Right. Um, and maybe I was a leader and I didn't know it, right. but I, I was definitely a follower. And not until... Um, I got involved with law enforcement, working for the sheriff's office, that I become passionate, truly passionate about something. And maybe that's where my leadership qualities started coming out. Um, but there's been a lot of work, you know, behind the scenes. And I, that's not me. There's just been a lot of investment from people that were in leadership positions for me. So I was able to model their behavior. I was able to learn from them. I was able to eventually take their advice. Um, and through that, and then combining the qualities of leaders that I valued, I think that's how I develop my leadership abilities. Well, Chief Matthew Tamayo, thank you again for being with us here on the Rancho Cordova podcast. I mean, I really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. And before we get to the very, very end, we always end this show, as I said, with a round of quick fire questions. All right. Remember your officers will listen to them when you answer. <laughs> um, so let's go. So what is one word others would use to describe you? Oh, man. Hopefully, um, caring, yeah. but I would say probably motivated. Motivated. motivated yeah. And what is one word you use to describe yourself? Um, I try to be introspective. If you could be a person for a day besides yourself, and everybody says alive or living, either one, who would it be and why? Oh, man, this is a tough one. Um, so I have a deep interest in passion for archaeology, anthropology, paleontology. Yeah. So, you know, whether it be maybe Diane Fossey or somebody like that. Okay. But, um, I would love to be, and, and again, I talked earlier about not being a, a good student. So yeah. 
the science route never really worked out, but being somebody involved in a career like that would be amazing, I think. What is your biggest pet peeve? Uh, people who throw lit cigarettes out of their car windows. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I was in a taxi once in Barcelona, random. This is random. Mm -hmm. And the taxi driver is there and he's smoking. And I speak Spanish fluently, but he's smoking. And he threw the cigarette out of the car yeah. as we're driving. And within seconds, he got pulled over by a cop on a bike. Mm -hmm. And I heard them. And the cop was disgusted that he threw the cigarette out. Yeah. He was disgusted. Yeah. So if you're driving and you see someone do that, well, you don't have the power really to pull them over for that, right? I could. I mean, I don't have a marked patrol car. You no. know, and it would be a little No, wild, no, but as a, but... when you're uh... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every time. You every would? Time. Yeah. Every time. Someone threw a cigarette? You'd... Yeah. I guess here in California, it's a fire hazard. Oh, absolutely. Well. Yeah, a fire yeah. hazard. But it's just, you know, it's lazy. It's um, It demonstrates a lack of caring for your community. Yeah. Um, it just bothered me. And I, wow. I'll tell you this. I never wrote a ticket for it. You but there would be them. a bit of education. Yeah. You know, well, hey, good for you. Yeah, you know, you no, listen, out, let's not do that. I'm not big on cigarettes, yeah. so good. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. A couple more. What is one app on your phone that you cannot live without? Um, now, this is weird, but I like to pretend shop houses. So Redfin, the real estate app, yeah. I look at it every day. You and do? I, I look at houses. Not that I'm going to buy another house right, right. or move. Just window shopping. I just like, yeah, I just like yeah. looking at other people's houses for some wow. reason. And, and, you know, the layout, the decorations, things you do? like that. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's the one thing I look at all the time. Okay. Well, there's one thing people didn't know about you. Yeah. That would have been that, that you're a, a an interior designer wannabe, maybe. Yeah, yeah wannabe, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I'm not good at interior design, but I, I do like to look. And what's something about you that few people would know? Oh, man. That's a tough one. I'm pretty transparent. Yeah. Um, you have any skills? Sometimes people say, well, you know, I play the trumpet or I do this, that, and the other. Yeah, I can juggle. You can? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a great juggler, but I can juggle. Right. Yeah. And if I got into your car and I turned on the radio, what am I going to hear? You would hear a podcast. Yeah? yeah. You listen to podcasts? Almost exclusively. Yeah. You do. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, what is the biggest lesson that you learned from your mother? Uh, patience. She was very patient with me. Yeah. Um, Are you a patient person? Uh, no, I'm no. not. But I understand the need for patience. and. Um, I'm naturally not a patient person, but sometimes I need to take a deep breath. Yeah. Um, and I need to collect information before making a decision. And so um, I, I think that's probably the best. And lesson. then finally, in the same vein, the biggest lesson you learned from your father. If you're going to do it, do it right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, we've been speaking with the Rancho Cordova Police Chief, Matthew Tamayo. Chief Tamayo, thank you so much for being here. I know you've got, probably got a million other things to do. And most importantly, I want to thank you and the men and women of this department, Rancho Cordova, for everything that you do to keep the city the city it is, which is a great city for people to visit and live and everything else. So thank you and thank you for being here. Thank you for your support and thank you for having me here. Appreciate it. So there you have it, folks. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website, which is www.ranchocordovapodcast.org, where you can listen to past show and please send us any comments for show suggestions you may have. My name is Charles Lego, and until next time.